2: Good afternoon, Bay Area State Planning Attorney Bob Bergman here, and uh, I'm broadcasting from my office in San Jose, California, in the Cambrian Park neighborhood. A few orders of business. Let's start first with um, the fact that I now have my uh, webinar available for viewing you can access it at my website if you go to lawbob.com, L-A-W-B-O-B.com, and at the top menu you'll see Estate Planning Webinars for California Residents. Click on that button and a page will open and you can then see that right now I have one webinar up. I have another one that will be coming up. Uh, probably within a couple of weeks, but this one right now is up, Estate Planning for Busy Parents. There's a link that you can click on to register and watch the webinar now. If you're parents uh, and you have young kids or even adult children, I encourage you to watch this webinar. It's going to give you a lot of useful information and uh, it will disclose at the end what my fees are and uh, we'll give you an opportunity to go ahead and schedule a special consultation with me only available to those who have viewed the webinar and uh, and there's also a bonus at the end of the webinar so I encourage you you need to watch all the way to the end in order to see what the bonus is second order of business is Next month, I will be celebrating five years on the air with 1220 AM KDOW using this show, Plan Your State Radio, as the vehicle. Uh, For a combination of factors, I've made the decision to discontinue my show. My last show will be March 24th, Friday. So that's Approximately one month from now. And um, so I would suggest that you uh, go to lawbob.com and bookmark that page. I'm still deciding whether or not I will put together and start um, hosting a podcast accessible through my website or through some podcast platform. That remains to be seen. I have found that... uh, the various obligations that I have as an attorney and as a parent um, mean that it's time for me to step back from the show. I think five years is a pretty good run and I hope that over the time, even if you just joined me or if you've been with me since the beginning, I hope that I can always provide useful information to all of you that may help you and your family and loved ones with their estate planning needs. So with that in mind, I'm going to go back into my usual format for this show, which is questions and comments from around the state of California. So let me lead off with one from Temecula, California. I've always loved that name for a city, Temecula. It sounds like it either could be some kind of wonder drug or maybe a new tequila that's been released, but Temecula just has a nice sound to it. So these people say we have three young kids, have a home with a mortgage, savings account, 401k plans, Roth IRAs, etc., What legal documents should my husband and I have in place for our family? Well, I think if you've been listening for quite some time, you already know what the answer to that is. Having a home means that you definitely should have a living trust that owns that home, that has those savings account in it, other assets in it, except for the 401k plans and Roths, which cannot be owned by a trust, but they need to be structured in such a way that they're not going to um, be inadvertently paid out to those young kids when those young kids turn age 18. That's the other reason to do a trust, to make sure that your assets are passed on to those young kids at an appropriate time or else held in trust for them for their lifetime with them maybe eventually being in charge of their own inheritance but having asset protection in effect as a result Um, there needs to be a financial power of attorney for each of you so someone can handle any non-trust assets such as those retirement monies that we talked about and also um, showing um, let's see also handling things like Uh, filing tax returns for you, and in later years, dealing with Social Security, Medicare, Medi-Cal, which is the Medicaid program here in California, Veterans Administration, if you're a veteran, and uh, other government agencies that may need someone as a designated representative or nominated representative in order to represent you uh, in front of those agencies. That's what a financial power of attorney is for then an advanced health care directive which has a health care power of attorney incorporated into it so someone can make uh, someone can make medical and health care decisions for you if you're no longer able to do so and with those young kids i would throw in my children's legacy plan which provides a nomination of guardians for those kids Uh, confidential exclusion of guardians if there's family members you would not want to raise your children and some families are in that situation it also has a designation of temporary caretakers which is used for you to indicate who are the adults that you trust to temporarily take custody of your children if your preferred guardian or guardians are not readily available may have to come in from another part of the state or even another part of the world. And then a medical power of attorney for your minor children so that someone can make medical and health care decisions for them if something has happened to you and you're not able to handle that for them. So those are the kinds of legal documents that I think it's fair to say this family in Temecula should have in place if they wanna be as protected as possible from conservatorship, avoiding probate um, at the first and second death, and also maximizing income and estate tax savings if the estate plan is drafted in particular ways. Okay, here is someone out of Los Angeles, says a caregiver, trustee, surrogate, beneficiary used undue influence over an 85-year-old, to have the 85-year-old create a power of attorney, naming the caregiver as agent, and a revocable living trust, naming the caregiver as trustee and beneficiary to 80% of the estimated value of the estate. She's ignored written requests for detailed complete accountings from another beneficiary. Well, I would say if you are convinced that there has actually been Undue influence, and the person's 84, this is a job for the Elder Financial Abuse Unit of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. I would contact the District Attorney's Office, uh, tell them your concerns, tell them what you believe is going on so that they will do an investigation and determine if, in fact, elder financial abuse has occurred. If that's the case, they will likely be able to get all of that planning reversed and have the uh, have the person return back to what they were before okay coming up on the first break of the show today when we come back i'll continue with more plan your estate radio this is your host estate planning attorney bob bergman broadcasting from san jose and i'll talk with you again after the break
1: This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW.
2: Hi, welcome back to the second segment of our show today. And uh, I'm going to move on with more questions and comments. This next one is from Los Angeles, California. And uh, here the person has said... Let's see. My deceased brother names me as a co-trustee in his irrevocable trust. He did not name the trust on one financial account and did not name a beneficiary on that account either. Although we have a trust, the financial institution is asking for a letter of testamentary. That's actually letters testamentary. Is that necessary? Well, where to begin if you have a trust and you didn't actually transfer the ownership of property into the trust and then you die and the value of the account it sounds like the value of this count is substantial if the value exceeds hundred and eighty four thousand five hundred dollars then some kind of probate court action is going to be necessary to get that account over into the trust. We start first with, did the person also have a will, called a pour over will, that directs that they are to actually transfer that property uh, through the probate court system and have it be put into the trust? That's the first question. If that exists, then one alternative is to do a full-blown probate in Los Angeles County that uh, would be going through the probate court and have the will carried out uh, to actually then turn around and get that property turned over to the brother's trust so that it can then be distributed according to what the trust says. However, it may be possible if there is written evidence of intent by the brother that that account be part of his trust, it may be possible to go to court with what is called a Hegstat petition. And if you've been listening for any amount of time on my show, you've heard me talk about Hegstat petitions. Hegstat is named after a court case where the party involved's last name was HEGSTAT. It's nothing more amazing than that. It's actually a proceeding under Probate Code Section 17200 and Section 850. And what the HEGSTAT does is if you can provide written evidence that the creator or trustor of the trust intended an account or an asset to be part of the trust, the court is within its power. To sign a court order declaring that that property is, in fact, part of the trust. Now, things that may require you to, um, to actually uh, things that may uh, that are things that are written proof of intent would include if it was identified in a schedule of assets. Uh, You know, bank account at this bank was identified in an asset schedule attached to the trust, preferably signed and dated by the creator of the trust. That's number one. There could be a general assignment of property to the trust that identifies the type of asset, such as bank account, brokerage account, etc., as intended to be part of the trust. That could be used by the court to support that. There could be a letter that somebody wrote that said, uh, uh, Dear Johnny, this is your Uncle Joe. I'm leaving you my bank account at Bank of America, account number 12345678. And uh, uh, through my trust, just want to let you know, he never transferred in the trust, but the letter could be evidence that he intended it to be in the trust because he referred to the trust in the letter so there's a lot of different ways you can actually get into court short of doing the full-blown probate and the Hegstat might be actually the best choice for this family but there's no real way to know without looking at the documentation now i do this type of court work um, here in the bay area i also do it for uh, attorneys that refer matters to me in other parts of the state, or even individuals who come to me because they either saw my, uh, my little uh, YouTube uh, YouTube uh, video that I have at my YouTube channel, the Offices of Robert P. Bergman, a couple minutes long that explains what I do and the process, uh, or else they visited my website and they actually uh, read about it on my website. Um, I can handle those types of matters basically from anywhere in the state. As long as all of the interested people involved with the trust or the estate of the person that has died. As long as they all consent, they agree to waive notice of any hearing and a couple of other requirements, we can actually do all of this and uh, and file paperwork with the court and get that granted within a few weeks. As long as we have the documentation that the court is expecting to see, we can get that granted in as little as a few weeks. Pretty amazing, huh? I certainly think so. And so do all of the uh, the clients that I actually have um that I have helped people over the years doing these kinds of things with these hegstat petitions uh, I get a great deal of personal satisfaction out of doing petitions like that because I know the family is saving a lot of time and money by avoiding going through the entire probate process uh instead. Being able to get it done in a few weeks instead of months and months and months and months, that's a real advantage for families, and uh, it's it's something I'm proud to do and happy to do for them. Now, of course, I do charge for that, but the cost for me doing a Hegstat petition is going to be a lot less, and it's going to be a lot less in terms of time wasted than going through a probate Especially for something like a piece of real estate, which could be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in value and could cost five, ten, fifteen, twenty thirty thousand dollars to go through the probate process and uh that's what I'm trying to avoid doing the hegstat petition, okay, well, we're coming up on the mid show break now, and when we come back. I'm going to continue with more questions and comments. Uh, The first one I'm going to be dealing with is out of Los Angeles. And it's asking the question, if I'm married here in California and my spouse gets gifts from a friend or will inherit from his parents, is that community property or will it only belong to my spouse? Stay tuned for the answer after the mid-show break.
1: This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW.
2: Hi, welcome back. Now, before the break, I was sharing a question out of Los Angeles. And basically, someone was asking, if I'm married in California, live in California, and my spouse gets monetary gifts from a friend or inherits from parents when his parents pass, are those considered community property, meaning property of the marriage, or will they only belong to him? The answer is um, yes, no, or maybe. Yes, they're community property. If he takes all that money and decides to add your name to it or puts it into accounts that you both have and basically makes it very clear by his behavior, that he intends you to both own everything. He can make it community property by his actions, by his behavior. But the general rule would be that is uh, your spouse's separate property, separate from the marriage and and can be kept separate and distinct from the marriage uh, and and is not uh, something automatically shared in a marriage. So... Hopefully, that uh, that actually answers that question right there. Um, it's probably a question a number of you are married out there. You may have wondered that before. Um, you know, is it our property or is it just my spouse's property? Well, that's the short answer right there. It can be more complicated if the spouse receiving funds or property um, actively does things to mix them up or co-mingle them into the property owned by the marriage. Then it can get um, a little more complicated and family lawyers may have to be brought in in a situation like that. Okay. Out of Los Angeles. We got another one out of Los Angeles. All right. Um, As a successor trustee, should I have a special email address? Or is using my personal email address okay? Okay, person said, I'm the successor trustee of my mother's trust. One of the beneficiaries of the trust is highly combative. I'm gonna guess it's a sibling of the trustee. Uh, After eight years of operating this trust, should I have a special email account for all trust business and communications with the beneficiaries? Or is using my personal email account okay? Okay, it sounds like you've been using your personal email account for eight years. I'm sure it's not like you can uh, hide anymore or pretend that you you don't you're not receiving any communication to the personal email account. I think it is a good idea, however, if this trust is going to go on for a long time, to get a separate email account that is dedicated to the trust, maybe one that has the initials of the trust in it or something, you know, perhaps a Gmail account um, so that everything that is trust business is coming and going from the same place. So it's easier to track. That would be my thinking right there as, um as probably the, uh, a smart thing to do now. Not everybody will do that, and there's no requirement that you do that, but it's certainly something to consider if you wanted to keep your personal business separate from the business you're handling as the trustee of a trust. Another one out of Los Angeles, kind of busy today. Is it feasible to challenge a trust as soon as you know it's been inappropriately altered? Okay, what I'm hearing there is someone has acted with undue influence over the creator of the trust or has forged their name and made changes to the trust. I mean, there's any number of possibilities there. person wants to know under what circumstances should you wait and is advice to, to wait bad advice? Well, I would say if you believe a trust has been inappropriately altered um and the trust or creator of the trust is uh over 65 years of age there may actually be financial elder abuse going on and i talked about that a little earlier in the show um if you have proof that this was that this happened and it's not just your opinion that well you know mom should not have changed the trust to to give my brother fifty thousand dollars more uh, even though my brother has been taking care of mom for the last five years, he he left his job so he could move in and take care of mom all this time. And he's the only one that's helping out, by the way. Um, but I think it was inappropriate for mom to change the trust. Well, ultimately, if you think something's going on, the place to go is to go to the district attorney If the person's under 65, I don't really know what to tell you. Uh, You may not be able to challenge anything at this time, and uh, you you may end up creating more problems. Uh, This might be a case for the creator of the trust that if they really intended this change and they wanted to make sure that everyone recognized the change and, and nailed it down, it is possible to go to court with your current trust and give notice to everybody who would be affected by that trust, either by being excluded or having their interests reduced in some way, give notice to all of them and then have the court sign off on the changes that you've made. If someone who's complaining doesn't show up in court after being properly served with notice of the hearing and a copy of a petition with a copy of the trust that's proposed to be um, approved by the court. Well, then you've kind of nailed down any future challenges to that trust. Now, if you make any changes to the trust going forward, then all bets might be off because you may have made a new change that someone else would complain about. So it's something to only really consider if you know you have your estate plan in the final way it's going to be, your trust in the final way it's going to be, and you're not going to change it anymore. And therefore, uh, and you want to have it nailed down. That might be appropriate for someone who's older, someone who's already having difficulties with a child or other family member, um, making noises and uh, harassing and things like that. That might be a way to basically um, shut them up ahead of time. So they don't really have any basis for uh, coming in and complaining later on. Okay, out of San Diego, California. When a beneficiary of a trust disclaims a particular property, such as stock held by the trust, what happens to that property? So it says mom and her sister own a business together. Mom mom owns 75%, which was in a living trust. Her sister owns 25%. Mom's trust has three beneficiaries. Her sister and her two children, I'm one of the children. Her trust is split evenly three ways, 25% to each of us. I'm not interested in the business. My mom and aunt have run it for 30 plus years. My sister has worked there for 20 years. I don't need them to buy me out. And they wouldn't have the money to do it anyway. If I disclaim my 25% inheritance of the stock, will it be split evenly between my aunt and my sister? Um, And the the answer is uh, probably, unless the trust provides that your 25% would go to your children, if uh if you predeceased your mother, if you don't have children, then the question is does it explicitly state that your twenty-five percent just goes to the other two beneficiaries, your aunt and your sister? Uh does it say I give this stock in equal shares to my sister and my two children or the survivor of them? There's a lot of different ways that a trust can actually be written up to reflect what happens. Uh, because if you say, I'm going to disclaim it, meaning I don't want it, then in terms of um, the trust law, when you disclaim, basically you are treated for purposes of the trust as if you had predeceased the person leaving that gift to you. So you have to look at the language of the trust to see what happens to that if you actually uh, execute a disclaimer after that person dies saying that you don't want uh, any part of that asset that is going to be coming to you from the trust. Let me see if I can do a a quick one here. Ah. Yorberlin to California, says my father and his second wife live in California and he recently passed away. They never had any children together and his wife is still living. My siblings and I are wondering if we're entitled to any of his estate. Unfortunately, we don't really get along with my stepmother. Knowing my father, I'm sure he had a will, but because he developed Alzheimer's, I'm also sure everything was signed over to his wife. You know, the answer is... There's really no way to answer that question without knowing if your father had a will. And if he didn't have a will, it depends on whether he owned things jointly with your stepmother or whether he kept things exclusively in his name so that it might have been separate property of his, in which case you would share with your stepmother. Um The siblings would get two-thirds. The stepmother would get one-third. But there's no real way to tell the answer without more information. Coming up on the third break of the show today, we'll continue after the break. This is estate planning attorney Bob Bergman, Plan Your Estate Radio, and we'll finish out the show in a few minutes.
1: Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman.
2: Hi, welcome back to the final segment of our show today. So this is a, a kind of a, an interesting one out of Ontario, California. And uh, goes as follows. It says the trustee of a family trust paid for a life insurance policy with two beneficiaries, herself and her brother. The brother was unaware the policy existed. Once the policy was activated, I assume that means the person who was insured, uh, died, the trustee told the brother to sign over the life insurance benefit. Trustee believes since she paid the life insurance premiums for both beneficiaries, she's entitled to the second beneficiary's life insurance benefit to reimburse her premium cost. The brother was advised to not hand over the reimbursement out of his benefit. Then on a trust property sale, the trustee withheld $70,000, presumably that's the total amount of the premiums, from the brother's portion of the property sale proceeds. The trustee itemized the $70,000 withheld as reimbursement for life insurance premiums. The trustee's actions were without the brother's knowledge or permission. Is that legal? Well, the answer is It's legal, um, but that doesn't mean that a court wouldn't overturn it. Um, Let's start first with, let's assume that $70,000 was paid for uh, the total amount paid for the premiums for the life insurance. We'll just start with the most basic thing. Half of that premium that was paid by that person was to directly benefit the sister um, as a 50% beneficiary of the life insurance. The other half benefits the brothers. So really, the, the, the sister, um, if the life insurance were being paid out of the, the trust itself, the premiums were being paid, half of it would be attributed to each one of them as an expense of the trust. So if this is an expense of the trust um, reimbursing back to uh, the sister, um, she's, you know, if you treat it as a loan to the trust to pay the premiums, then she would be entitled to be paid back from the trust. But this was kind of, that was handled inappropriately. The appropriate way is not to just, um, just withhold from the brother's portion of the property sale proceeds. That's not appropriate. It should be paid from the total proceeds. If at all, 50, 50, not a hundred percent from the brother's share, because if it's truly a reimbursement that comes off the top before you divide up the shares. Um, Taking the full amount from the brother's share is basically forcing the brother to pay half of the premium for the sister's share. You see how that works? So that's not appropriate. Um, I I would uh, point. It sounds like the, the sister here is not working with an attorney assisting her because an attorney such as myself would point out that you're entitled to be reimbursed off the top because it was essentially a loan to the trust. But you're not entitled to take a 100% of that from your brother's share because half the insurance proceeds came to you, which means that, You should each bear an equal cost or an equal share of the monies you paid in. So 35%, $35,000, 70000 rather, goes to you off the top. And that effectively means that you each paid for your half of the insurance. I don't know if that's making sense. I know uh, a lot of people uh, have a hard time with math, and I understand that. Um, I'm actually pretty darn good at math. But when you sit down and you diagram that out, it makes a lot more sense for uh, uh, when you kind of show in a diagram how it actually works. It does make a lot more sense. Okay, out of Hesperia, California, it says my sister and I are named as agents on my mother's power of attorney with my sister first and then me second. She and my mother live in New Mexico. My mother now has severe dementia. My sister can no longer care for her. I'm moving my mother back to California with me, but I don't know how to access her money to pay for a memory care facility because I'm in the number two position on her power of attorney. My sister does not want to resign her position, but she wants me to care for her. So it's like, take care of mom, but you're not going to have access to any of her money to help take care of her. That makes no sense. Um, the power of attorney was executed in New Mexico. I'm now in California. I'll be moving my mom in a few weeks. Would a bank allow me access if I'm the second agent based on the circumstances listed above? Answer. No. If you're not the actual first position agent, they're, they're not going to let you access mom's funds. Says, mom, you're the first medical power of attorney. You can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You can handle mom's medical and health care decisions, but your sister's going to have to work with you for you to be able to properly take care of your, meaning both of your, mother. Okay, well, that's the end of the show today. Hope you have a great weekend. And until next Friday, this is Attorney Bob Bergman. Good day.
1: You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney, Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com. L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com. Or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman.